It was during the reign of Solomon, wise King Solomon, that God had hinted that there would be a dividing of the kingdom. During Solomon's day, whose name means peace, it was a time of prosperity and affluence. But Solomon had a son, a son who was a punk. His name was Rehoboam. And when Rehoboam ascended to the throne in the sandals of his father, a group of people from the northern part of the kingdom came down south to Jerusalem and said to Rehoboam, you got to cut us some slack here. We've endured the hard, forced labor of all the building projects of your father for many years. You need to give us a break. Well, Rehoboam sought the counsel of his homies, and being the punk that he was, came back to those elders of Israel in the northern part of the kingdom and said, you thought my daddy was tough, you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, the elders from the northern kingdom said, all right, we'll take our ball and go home. And so this created a kind of a split, a civil war within Israel where you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the first king to ascend to the, north, to the throne of the northern kingdom was a man by the name of Jeroboam, easy to confuse with Rehoboam. Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And one of the first things that Jeroboam did, which was a wise political move, but was a vile moral move, was that he built rogue worship centers in Bethel and Dan. And he even erected golden calves there. And so that the northern kingdom engaged in all manner of syncretistic idolatry and rogue worship with a rogue priesthood and rogue temple worship for some 150 years. And God would send prophets to them, appealing to the kings, appealing to the people to repent. Remember stories of Elijah and Elisha? Many different prophets, some strange stories even of, uh, of your member, the one prophet who initially comes there and, and Jeroboam puts out his hand and basically shouts at him and, and God makes his hand turn wither leprous almost immediately. But God, for 150 years, sent prophet after prophet. And one of the last prophets that he sent was a man by the name of Amos. And by this time, some 150 years after Jeroboam I, Jeroboam II is on the throne. And so, the book of Amos is a prophecy of judgment that comes in many different angles, many different sermons throughout this book. And the interesting thing, during this last time period in Israel, under the reign of Jeroboam II, the Israelites had experienced a significant measure of prosperity and affluence, so much that they were at ease in Zion. So much that he calls some of their women the cows of Bashan. 
highlighting their fattened prosperity. And in this last section of Amos, which is the culmination of the book of Amos, he's specifically aiming his guns at those who deny the reality of impending judgment. Who say, no, we're good. There's no judgment. God wouldn't do that to us. Look at our bank accounts. Look at our lifestyles. Surely the blessing of God is upon us. And it's in the midst of this that Amos brings the roar of God's judgment to prove and demonstrate to them, no, indeed, God is against them. But he doesn't do this without still a measure of grace and hope if they would but repent. This sermon of Amos 9 reminds me of uh, some of what were called the awakening sermons that older preachers used to give. Perhaps you've heard of the famous one by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was specifically sermons that were geared in design to shock and awaken people to the reality of God's judgment so that they might turn to God in His mercy and grace. So, Amos is going to lay down four arguments for God's coming destruction for those who remember, verse 10, this is how he ends this section, to those who say calamity will not overtake or confront us. First argument, God's promise guarantees destruction. Verse 1, I saw the Lord, Adonai, the king, standing beside the altar. So this first phrase, I saw. Now this is a prophetic vision. Amos is seeing something that God is revealing to him. He sees Adonai, the Lord, standing beside the altar. And almost certainly, this altar is not the altar in Jerusalem in the south with the Solomonic temple that Solomon had built. But this is the altar that is in the temple in Bethel. This was where rogue worship had been taking place for some 150 years. This is the place where sacrifices were brought. But sacrifices that were not orchestrated and and regulated by the Levitical priesthood, but by the priesthood that Jeroboam I had instituted many years prior. And so the Lord is there. And again, if we stopped here, the Israelites in the north would, 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 would have thought, well, great. God is there at the altar, receiving our gifts, receiving our sacrifices, and all is well. But notice what the Lord says as He's seen at the altar. In verse 1, it says, Strike the capitals so that the threshold will quake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. No one of them can flee who will flee. And not one of them who can survive will escape. 
So what becomes apparent is that this is a bad dream or a bad vision. This is a terrorizing vision. A couple nights ago, one of our little ones came flying into our bedroom. And we heard later on from the testimony of others in the household, she was convinced that a chicken was in her bed chasing her. I don't know if this was Cluck Norris, one of our chickens, if this was some other chicken in her dream, but she was convinced that a chicken was chasing her. And she was running rapidly through the house so much that she finally ran into our bedroom, closed the door, and dived into our bed, as she does most nights. A terrorizing vision. Well, I can assure you this vision of the Lord is far more terrorizing than a scary chicken. This is God the Almighty who's coming in judgment. So much that it says, notice, strike the capitals so that the threshold will quake. So, so the way in which they would build structures in the ancient world, temples where the, you would have the, the top of the pillar that was called the capital or the head, and then the threshold is the bottom. And this is a, is a kind of a, a, a merism here where God is saying, crush it from top to bottom so that the house comes down. And this is God's judgment upon the false worship that was taking place in Bethel. Break it on the heads of them all. Kill. He says, then I, and then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. In other words, if they escape the crumbling rubble that falls upon their heads, my sword will chase them. Not one of them who can flee will flee. And not one of them who can survive will escape. This is God's severe judgment. Again, God had warned them, prophet after prophet, vision after vision, word of the Lord after word of the Lord for over a hundred years. And they refused to listen. In fact, if you read First and Second Kings, you, you often find out God's, the people's relationship with God was signified by their relationship to the prophets. They did not want to hear them. They would mock them. They would ridicule them. In fact, remember that one story of the young men? Go up, you bald man! Go up, you bald man! They were mocking the prophet Elijah who God had taken up. They were mocking Elisha by an allusion to the prophet Elijah. And God sent a bear and ate all of them. This was, God, this was the people's relationship to God as they refused to hear the voice of God. But God kept appealing to them. And even here in Amos, he's appealing. But notice the parallel to verse 1 we find down in verse 9 and 10. This section is, is what uh, is, is sometimes called a chiastic structure where, where you're going to see parallels on the ends that work their way all the way through and there's kind of a a center cheeseburger right in the middle that's the, that's the essence of the message that he wants to communicate. 
And so the parallel here is down in verse 9 10. You can see some of the parallels with sword and shaking and quaking. And it says in verse 9, For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as the grain is shaken in a sieve. But not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. And again, this statement, who he's talking to, those who say, Calamity will not overtake us or confront us. God is saying judgment is coming. The house will be brought down. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. This is God vowing his judgment upon his own people for their rebellion. This is the promise that God had for Israel. And by the way, he brought it to pass. Not many years after Amos preached these sermons and they were written in the book that we now have in our hands called Amos, God would send the Assyrians to come and to ravage the northern kingdom, to take many of them kidnapped, to bring them into exile, and they never came back. Unlike the southern tribe that We see in the book of Daniel and then with Ezra and Nehemiah that eventually come back, the northern tribe decimated forever. And this again, this is part of God's faithfulness. Remember, we had been studying the book of Leviticus chapter 18. You knew I was going to squeeze that in somewhere. Remember what God had said? God had said, this is how the Egyptians were living And I took you from there. This is how the Canaanites who who are living in the land that I'm going to plant you in, this is how they live with all their child sacrifice, all their sexual perversions, all their wickedness. And I vomited them out of the land. And I'm warning you that if you do the same, I will vomit you out of the land. And and wouldn't you know, even in the book of Amos, shocking as it is, I think it's in chapter 3 or chapter 2, he highlights the incestuous relationships that the Israelites had been involved in, which we see in Leviticus chapter 18. And over and over, he highlights the idolatries and the wickedness of the northern tribes. And now God's patience has run out for three transgressions and four. Now he's going to bring his hammer of judgment. He promised he will do it and he does it. We say this is all fine and dandy, Matt, but what does this have to do with me? Because sometimes we delude ourselves that God's judgment is not for me. That's for somebody else. That's that's for the Democrats. That's for the dirty people of society. That's for the real sinners in the world. But me, I'm good. And God's message through the prophet Amos is that God's guns of justice are aimed at all sinners, all rebels to his kingship, which includes all of us by nature. And we may delude ourselves that no, 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 I'm raised in a Christian home. I'm good. No, no, I, I memorize scripture. I'm good. No, no, God's not really like this. 
Well, he says he's like this. And you delude yourself that this is not for you. But I tell you on the authority of God's word through the prophet Amos, when God threatens judgment, it's real. It's more guaranteed, more real than anything in your life. And if you are outside of Christ and you die outside of Christ, God promises eternal and unending judgment. What were physical threats of judgment and exile and Assyrian coming and ravaging the land and kidnapping and all of that, when we come to the New Testament, His threats of judgment, His severity in judgment is in one sense even worse because it's eternal hell and it's forever. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. This is the promise. You reject Jesus. There is no hope for salvation. You have the promise of eternal and unending judgment and wrath. And you may say to yourself like those in verse 10. It's not going to happen to me. But God promises it will happen. This passage was alluded to in the song we sang on the love of God. Pastor Chris mentioned it, Revelation 6, 15. What it will be like when God comes in judgment to this earth. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave man hid himself in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. What sobering words, my friends. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 8, or Revelation chapter 21 in verse 8. Remember, God says, but for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the sexually immoral, the murderers, and all idolaters, their part will be what? In the lake that burns with fire forever and ever. You see, friends, God is a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. Now, we may not like to hear about that, but there's a sense in which in each of our hearts there's an impulse to want justice in this earth. When we hear of a child that is abused or some, some wicked thing that takes place or, or the aggression of, of one army against another, just stealing land, stealing property, our heart cries out, that's wrong! Justice should be done! They should pay for that! That impulse is built into humanity. We want what is right and what is just. We just don't want it for ourselves. We just want it for others. But the reality is, my friends, we all deserve God's justice. And until you've come to terms with that, you can never find the solution that is found in the gospel.
If you still think that God will wink at your sins, he will not. He will not. The second argument is his presence, not only his promise, God's promise guarantees destruction, his presence. Notice verse 2 through 4. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And though they conceal themselves from my eye on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that that it will kill. And I will set my eye against them for evil and not for good. What is fascinating about each of these arguments is that these same truths for believers, namely the promise of God, is that not solace to the soul of the believer? Is that not milk and nourishment to your soul? God's promises, he will be faithful? Well, that same characteristic ought to be a tear to the unbeliever. That means he will be true to his threats of judgment. Well, and similarly, his presence. Is not his presence ointment to the soul? Ointment to a chapped soul? When you realize, uh, you think of different passages, like how about um, Isaiah 41.10? Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. How about Psalm 23, which Christians for thousands of years have loved and enjoyed? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And even Psalm 139, which the parallels in this section are uncanny. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my wings on the dawn, you are there. This is the heart of the psalmist. Says, I can't escape you, God. You are with me wherever I go. And for the believer, this is a tremendous solace. This is a tremendous comfort. But for those outside of Christ, his presence guarantees that they will be hunted down inescapably. That one can try to run, one can try to hide, one can, like Adam and Eve, running from God in the garden, but God can hunt them down. His presence is inescapable. He says, though they dig into Sheol, my hand will take them. What is Sheol? It's just on the other side of Gerard, just kidding. Though they dig into Sheol, this is the place of the grave. They can dig a bunker a thousand feet deep thinking you're safe from nuclear disaster, safe from the hand of God's judgment, but from there my hand will dig them out and grab them. If, I ascend, if they ascend to heaven... God says, I will bring them down. You could work for NASA and and, and enter into some kind of space shuttle and be on the other side of the moon and God will grab you. Verse 3, you can hide on the top of Carmel, a high mountain. 
hiding in maybe between some of the rocks. But God will come get you. Second part of verse 3, you can conceal yourself from, the, from my eyes on the floor of the sea. Go to the bottom of the ocean in some kind of submarine. God says, I will command my serpent and it will bite them. God has all the universe at his beck and call. He lacks no resources to execute his judgment. Verse 4, though they go into captivity, I will command the sword that it will kill them. Even in a far off land, when judgment seems over, the sword will be summoned by Almighty God to execute His judgment. What a dreadful thing. What a frightening thing. Every once in a while you read in the news about Somebody who was murdered by a stalker. And sometimes you find out that this stalker would leave notes of warning of what he was going to do to them. And then he brings it about in his malevolent, wicked plan. Now God is no wicked stalker. But you can imagine the fear, the dread that would overcome a person to get notes like that. Notes of threats saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do something evil. Well, there's a very real sense in which these are God's notes to humanity of his coming judgment if they do not repent and turn to him. Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian in his section on the doctrine of God, he talks about God's omnipresence, as it's sometimes called, that God is present everywhere, but cannot be contained anywhere, and he highlights how this, indeed, as we see in Amos 9, is a dreadful doctrine to those who are outside of Christ. Bavink says, when you wish to do something evil, you retire from public into your house, where no enemy may see you. And from those places in your house which are open and visible, maybe there's window here, window there, you remove yourself into your inner room. But even there in your inner room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart, and there you meditate, thinking you have escaped. But he, that is God, is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither shall you flee? If God is even more inward than myself, where can I flee? I can't escape myself. Then he says, will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God angry, but To God reconciled, there is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? No, no, no. Flee unto him. You see what he's saying? Don't flee from God in rebellion. Flee to him in reconciliation. Don't try to outrun this God 
who is incensed at your rebellion and sees all that you have done. Instead, you run to him. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. We find that the Lord Jesus himself is in the, even in the presence of the lake of fire in the future. In Revelation 9, uh, 14, 9, it says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. They are tormented in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Again, for Israel, this was temporal judgment that was promised. But in the unfolding of the counsel of God in the scriptures, we see that it's eternal, unending judgment that's promised. And even the second part of verse 4, it says, My eye is against them for evil and not for good. My eye is against them for evil and not for good. What, what does he mean by this? Well, he, he's, he's not talking about moral evil, but he's talking about physical evil, calamity. My eye is against them for evil and not for good. God is bringing calamity, destruction. And again, when we trace so many of the passages in scriptures, God having his eye upon us is, is often a thought of comfort and hope. Right? I mean... George Beverly Shea. His eye is on the sparrow. Oh, Savior. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. For the believer, this is a tremendous comfort. This is, again, medicine to the soul. But for those outside of Christ, the thought that God is watching, that his surveillance system is inescapable, that you can't even retreat to the inner recesses of your heart, because there he is. Why would you try to run from him? Young person, you have so many concerns in your heart and your life. So many things that you think are so important right now. Friendships, appearance. These things aren't necessarily terrible or evil things. But my friend, they pale in significance to the reality of making sure that you are right with this God. Because there'll be no makeup in hell. 
There'll, no be, there'll be no wondering what outfit will work just right for this event in hell. There will be no contemplation of, will this friend accept me in hell? And it will go on forever and ever, world without end. Your most important reality that is before you right now is that you make sure that you are saved from the wrath to come. That you hide yourself in the Lord Jesus because there will be no turning back and there is no kitty hell. There is no teenage hell. There is only hell. Why run from God in rebellion when you can run to God reconciled? Well, we see His promise guarantees destruction. His presence guarantees destruction. Thirdly, His perception guarantees destruction. Uh, We could have intermingled this point with the previous one, but we see this in verses 7 and 8. Notice what He says here in 7 and 8. He says... Are not, are you not as son, as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel? Declares Yahweh, or some of your translations may say, the sons of Cush. In other words, what God is saying is that in my sight, I judge with perfect equity, perfect justice, <clears throat> and you are like the sons of Ethiopia to me. Well, you may say, well, okay doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, again, remember, these were God's covenant people. And they thought because God had shown them special favor, special kindnesses, that that meant they were good. Everything was okay between them and God. In fact, that you might say the theme verse, or certainly one of the theme verses of Amos, is Amos 3.2. You only, God says, out of all the nations have I known. Therefore, I will punish you. If, if it would have stopped at the first half, you only out of all the nations have I known. You can just imagine again the Israelites thinking, yeah, we're, we're, God is, we're God's people. But he says, therefore, I will punish you. And so now he's saying, you're like Ethiopia to me. I'm going to judge you with perfect equity just like I judge the Ethiopians, just like I judge the Cushites. But then notice what he says. This is shocking. He says, have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt. And so, again, this was part of God's special favor. He had delivered them out of Egypt. He had rescued them. He had showed special kindness. He had entered into covenant relationship. But then notice what he says here. And what about the Philistines from Kaftor? (laughs) I brought you up from Egypt, but did you know that I rescued the Philistines from Kaftor? So you think you're sweet? I did that for them. And the Arameans from Kerr, again, evidently there was a time the Arameans were in captivity and bondage to Kerr, and God delivered them. So in other words, you're banking on past grace to guarantee your future. He says, you need to stop, because verse 8, behold, my, behold, the eyes of Lord Yahweh are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Behold the eyes of Lord Yahweh 
are on the sinful kingdom. Again, God's eyes on them, but for destruction. God's eyes on them, but not the eyes of a loving father in tenderness and care for his children, more like a red dot scope eyes are on them. He's hunting them down. God knows all. God sees all. He's seen what they've been doing for the past 150 years. And he was going to hold them accountable. His patience was indeed toward them. But his patience is not infinite. And so his patience is not infinite with us either. Sometimes people will say things like, well, I know I haven't done so good, but, but God knows my heart. You know, I'm doing 20 to life, but God knows my heart. And you just think, that's a good thing, that God knows your heart? Because that means he knows all the sin that's in your heart. Every covetous, vile thought that runs through your brain. God sees it all. And he is the perfect judge who judges with perfect justice. I mean, again, let, let's just press this home. Imagine if we were able to kind of put some kind of microchip behind your ear that Elon Musk invented, and all of a sudden we're able to project your thoughts on the screen behind us and everybody's able to see exactly all that you thought this morning. Well, my goodness. It'd be like a civil war in this room. God sees all. You know, often people come before a judge or a mediator or something like that and they... They don't have all the information. Human law courts try to do the best that they can to make the best decisions they can with judges and juries and all of that. But often there is a lack of information to know the full story. But because of God's all-seeing eye, there is no lack of information. He sees and because he is a good and just God, the sins we've just committed this past morning are enough to damn us for all eternity. Again, that's why rather than run from God in rebellion, you run to him in reconciliation. But not only the promise guarantees judgment, the presence, the perception, now thirdly, the power. But there's a little twist with this last point. The power that guarantees destruction and deliverance. At this point, hopefully you're saying, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no hope in this message this morning? Well, I mentioned... This 
section forms something of a sandwich and the, the meat and the cheese is found in verse 5 and 6. And, and as God has been, um, through the prophet Amos, giving these arguments for his coming judgment, here in verse 5 and 6, it, he, he begins to expand and elaborate upon who this God is. And it's almost as if, uh, you know, if you've ever watched... Uh, you know, boxing match, and Michael Buffer comes out and says, ladies and gentlemen, in this corner over here, and there's a description that's given, weighing in at 220 pounds, at 6 foot 3, you know, with 20 knockouts, and, and there's this description that's given of this boxer. Well, in a similar way, Amos, in the middle of this, he's giving a description of who this God is. And he elaborates upon his tremendous power. Notice verse 5. Now, Lord Yahweh of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts. And all those who inhabit it mourn. So now this God is described as he could just touch the land and it melts. And, and if you were to follow that imagery throughout um, Throughout Amos, we see this imagery of, of fire over and over, especially throughout those first couple chapters. And here, here he, he can just touch it, and it melts. God's infinite power to execute his judgments and to do so perfectly. And then he says, And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. And so certainly, this again is speaking of his great power. He can just touch with his finger and it melts. He causes it to rise up. And, and waters in the scripture are often the waters of God's judgment. And here, so the, the flooding of the Nile River is likened to judgment. And then he continues on in verse 6. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens... And has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. The one who calls for the waters of the sea. And pours them out on the face of the earth. Yahweh is his name. What does verse 6 remind you of? Verse 6 reminds you of a chapter 6 somewhere else. Book of Genesis. Global flood. Again. Flood of judgment. This is God highlighting a time period in epoch in which he drowned all of humanity. He summoned all the waters to come forth and to drown humanity. He threatened his judgment in that instance for 120 years with Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And then finally, on that eventful day, God shut the door of the ark. And then he brought the floodwaters of judgment. He summoned all of creation at his beck and call to destroy all of humanity. And could you imagine how awful and dreadful that day was? People, no doubt, climbing up hills and mountains. People climbing up trees and the waters just coming 
people trying to climb on tops of their houses, but unable to escape the coming full-throttled judgment of Almighty God. By the way, the same event that the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter says that mockers say, where is the promise of his coming? All is at ease. You Christians, you think Jesus is coming back? And Peter says, remember the days of Noah. God's power to destroy. But, it's not only his power to destroy, it's his power to deliver. Notice even with the imagery that he uses, the touching of the finger on the land to melt. Fire can sometimes be used to destroy, but it's also used to do what? To purify. The overflowing Nile River that would bring destruction and havoc. But what happens after the waters subside on the delta? Lush soil ready for renewal and harvest. What happened with the global flood that brought God brought in Genesis nine uh, six through nine? He brought the flood, but he saves a remnant. He saves eight, Noah, his three sons, and their wives. And then after they get off the boat, it's like a new creation. God tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply. Sound familiar? Noah becomes a gardener. Sound familiar? In fact, when we follow and trace out the end of the chapter, notice verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. In other words, there's going to be such a busy harvest Things are going to be so fruitful, so multiplying that the plowman's overtaking the reaper. That, you know, normally, you, you know, one month of the year, you have the plowman tilling the soils. And then many months later, here comes the reaper. But no, no, they're overtaking one another. Things are so bountiful, much like a fruitful garden. Verse 13 when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will melt. And also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the desolate cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be uprooted from their land which I have given them, says Yahweh your so here, it would appear God is, is promising almost like a kind of restored Eden after the destruction. We say, how, does, how on earth does he do that? Well, I skipped verse 11 on purpose. 
so that you would know how. Because he says, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as, a, as in the ancient days that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares Yahweh who does this. And by the way, James in Acts chapter 15 quotes this passage when there was questions over whether those dirty Gentiles could actually be part of God's people. And he quotes this passage that God would restore the tabernacle of David. In other words, the point being is that here what God was going to do was that he was going to bring this king of David who would undergo the waters of judgment. And wouldn't you know, even on the inauguration of his Christ ministry as king, what happens? He goes into the waters of baptism as John baptizes him. And he comes up out of those waters of judgment to be greeted by a dove. Destruction, but restoration. But this time, destruction comes not upon Israel, but upon Jesus when he dies upon the cross and rises from the dead to bring forth a new creation, a new creation that even the text says a remnant of Edom would be a part of. And all the, the, the nations who are called by my name. And James picks up on the picture there. There's going to be Edomites in heaven. There's going to be Ammonites in heaven. There's going to be people, according to John and Revelation, of people purchased from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There's going to be people from this room. But you must not run from God in rebellion, but run to God in reconciliation through the restored booth of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's forever king who died upon the cross, who took the waters of God's judgment so that you can become part of a new creation that was inaugurated in Christ's coming but will be consummated in the future. Friend, which side are you going to be on? I urge you to run to God reconciled. Let's pray.